Hello, hello, and welcome to My Tennis Journey, where we aim to bring compelling tennis stories to life. As you're listening today, it'd be amazing if you could hit subscribe or follow. It's free, you know. So I met today's guest through tennis. But whilst he's very much a tennis player, he's very well known for good reason within badminton, within other sports and within Derbyshire sport in general. You know, this is a a man who has been head coach of GB Badminton, who has coached at the Olympics. In fact, my little brother actually got a picture with this guy at the Olympics, which we still have. Um, and, uh, And our guest today was also a pivotal figure in the establishment and the sort of going from strength to strength of the Derbyshire Institute of Sport. So welcome to the show, Andy Wood. Thank you, Rob. Andy, I mean, I want to talk tennis. I want to talk badminton. I want to talk (laughs) Derbyshire Institute of Sport. But let's go right back to the start of your sporting journey. You know, what's your first memory of playing sport? Yeah, I've just been the luckiest man in the world, played sport all my life and then gone into a world of coaching sport and still in it, still still get up in a tracksuit and hit things or try and do it a bit better or help other people do it a bit better. So I think I probably started off from uh, the moment I, well, was breathing maybe. <laughs> my mum tells a silly story that um, uh, even when I couldn't walk, I was um, playing hockey around the kitchen floor with a toothbrush and a acorn you know and I think I just loved it and um, so any opportunity at any time to, to throw run jump catch hit uh, smash was uh, something I just did and sporting family which we all know well and they were always going off to tennis or badminton and every free second of the day we had to be on the street kicking balls or down the fields till it got dark in school breaks and and that was me through and through so I think I knew very early on my life was going to be in sport. Uh, plus, it got me out of some of those more mundane academic subjects, which I should never say live to you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, no, I like it. I mean, do you know the bit I love the most about that? I love the idea of a toothbrush and an acorn. I need to give <laughs> one a go. We have a, we have a, we do a, a teeny tiny class at our our club, and it's kind of four year olds. And on the bottom court, there's an oak tree. And the acorns fall. So all I need to do is to get some toothbrushes. That's, that's, that's my lesson plan sorted. Well, if you what what the actual rules of the game are, which I devised when I was one for 1.5 years, you're underneath the kitchen table and there's four table legs. So they're quite big goals, but instead of getting through the goals, you have to hit the table legs. So there you go. Add that to the to the uh, repertoire. I love this. There's a coach called uh, Howard Green. I was speaking to Howard Green, who's a strength and conditioning coach, and he said, so many children nowadays, you just can't get them off their iPads. You know, you, yeah. what hope have you got? And, and that, that is the game that people... Put that iPad down if you've got a little one. Get them with a people, <laughs> get them an acorn, get them some gold, away you go. <laughs> you know, I just remember inventing games on the street. You know, you could play a one-two off the curb and then hit a volley onto the road sign that said danger that was on the street corner. <laughs> And you just got skilled at doing all these things. And um, of course, we can't uh, condone that to the young ones these days. But it was the skill set, wasn't it? But Andy, Danger Ball has a ring. (laughs) 
to it. I think Danger Bull could have a also. I mean, you're sorting my drills out left, right, and centre already. <laughs> did you did you have a, did you go on and have a favourite, or were you pure multi sport? You know. Oh, well, yeah, I played. I mean, I play. You play everything, don't you? Try and get in all the school teams, but football was obviously the first love, and um, tennis and badminton. And then I got you get to the stage where you're doing very well in all of them, and they all want you to choose their sport only. Um, I should say, actually, that in the early days when you were getting carried around with your mum, she'd go off shopping. She used to drop me off at um, Derbyshire Lawn Tennis Club, which we knew as Crew Street and County Club. And my grandfather was the club secretary and groundsman. So I was kind of brought up being dumped off there and helping him with the grass courts, doing the lines and uh, all of that. And he was quite a strong figure in the tennis community I'm sure all the archers and everybody like that will remember him dearly so I got started in tennis through that really picking a racket up and smashing things and and uh, eventually though you have to choose um, because you're doing okay you can't on every Saturday you can't go and play for all of them uh, and, and, and badminton was the choice I made and it, it wasn't based on serious thinking it was at that age it was simply the one I was having the most fun at and I think I probably needed an individual sport you know I, I love team sports but I was probably more of a guy that needed a you know an individual sport um, um, and uh, badminton was the one where we had the most fun so that's what I chose and that's no, the journey I took. <laughs> it's really interesting that you chose because of fun as well because I was just having a chat yeah. with a guy whose uh, son's coming down to the club and and uh, he was saying, um, you know, is it, you know, competitions and, yeah. you know, are they showing some, are they showing some talent here? And, and lovely guy. And I said, if they come off with a smile on the face, that's the most yeah. important thing. You know, are they having fun with it? And actually, the, the for the reason that you chose the most fun, I mean, it's just got to be a driver for all coaches out there, hasn't it? Make these sessions fun because it oh, I mean, keep them I think it's. Back. I think it's the, one of the most powerful performance requirements, you know. I think you're much more creative and you're fearless and you're ready for challenge and excitement when the environment and the culture is fun. And so often it isn't fun. It's, it's all results-based and it's all, you must do this, you must do that. But you're not ready to grow or achieve or develop when you're suppressed with a little bit of fear. So it's a hugely missed out uh, culture to it to take into your environment. Mm, love that, love that. So, <laughs> I mean, you had you, you, just one more on on the junior. You made that decision from the multi sport to to kind of specialise into the one you're having most fun in, which was badminton. But what age was that that you you made that decision, Andy? It was probably about fourteen, Rob. I think fourteen. So I, we we were much late developers, and that multi sport environment. Would, just did it all and um, nowadays you know if you're not specializing at four or six you you're challenged with being too late and uh, obviously I, I wouldn't advocate that kind of approach I don't see the success in that but um, it was probably about 13 14 where I actually stopped playing football and tennis really and uh, concentrated on badminton and um, started to do well there um, and, that, and that obviously took over everything but still tried to play tennis in the summers and a bit of decompression and 
it's very difficult to get football going again because it's just dangerous. Somebody treads on your toe or gives you a nudge in the calf and you're out for a while, aren't you? So, um, so I kept, I kept trying to play other things, played a lot of racquetball in the off seasons and that was great um, for cardio. So, but yeah, I, I would have loved to have played them all for longer. And yeah. I don't think I'd have suffered if I'd done it a bit later. It probably would have helped me because I, I still draw strengths from all of those sports in trying to deliver my number one sport. You know, there's so many assets from those sports that I would say are ingredients of a multi-sport environment earlier on, and particularly the competitiveness, the ability to have game skills and make decisions and take calculated risks in sport. They definitely come from an environment of competition that's varied. I love it. I think, you know, the, and I, I like reading books and, you know, I read, I read the book which um, Bounce by Matthew Zayed and yeah. an inspirational book and in many ways like inspired me to really try and embed tennis into our local community but you know yeah. the, the, that sort of premise that 10,000 hours of purposeful practice with yeah. good coaching will make you that expert I think a lot of people saw that as a signal that they have to specialize at that very early age and it's been brilliant to see other books coming out there's a book called Range that springs to mind that talks about how you get so many skills from doing different things yeah that 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 sort of whole context is why I asked that question about age actually and I think yeah you know it's it you can get so many and Federer's the classic example they quote in range where I think he was doing wrestling he was doing BMXing he was doing football he was doing tennis and I think it was probably around the age of 14 that he decided to specialize into tennis and not before. So, yeah, I mean, do you find that it sounds like you do that you find with the athletes that you'd work with that actually having that range of skills is something that's really helpful? Yeah, I mean, I also think you, you mentioned Federer and of course, he's a unique human being and the exception. But the way he manages himself and his balanced personality and his outlook on life as a result of um, his evolution as an athlete is remarkable. You know, he's calm, he's composed, he's managed all sorts of stresses and tribulations. And um, he still comes out as almost this supreme human being in a very balanced way because, you know, I know he had his early days where he was as mad as any of us, wasn't he, on the courts when he <laughs> yes. had his, uh, but he soon mellowed. And um, yeah, I think from a life skills perspective, which we're all trying to enhance in sport, when we coach, we're really trying to draw out the personality of our athletes so that they can be the winners, that they can be technically, tactically and physically in their sport. Um, and I think that balance is far more powerful as they evolve and the variety to, to create that drawing out the personality as to what kind of an athlete, a competitor they're going to be, you know. Yeah, yeah I get it. And yeah. I, mean, it, I mean, it seems like it must have been such a well it'll be really interesting actually because I loved sport as much as your good self but for whatever reason it wasn't until later in life that I really thought actually coaching can be my life and you yeah. know I'm so happy I'm so happy that I'm getting yeah. the opportunity to have this chapter but so how, yeah. did, how did you fall into the world of coaching or was it it wasn't yeah. forced, it was it was planned um I I um start once I started to get um success as a, as a junior performer and um uh you know I was all set for a career 
a long career as a player, chose badminton, the least, and obviously in Asia, it's the number one sport, it's huge, it's bigger than anything, And but in Europe, it's um, very high participation, but nowhere near the profile of tennis or golf, or it was much tougher in those days to make a living out of the sport, but don't think it was ever the money that drove my motivation, it was just the joy of getting better and getting to be the best at something, you know, and um, so it, it wasn't for finance, but you could eke out a living if you're the best handful of players in the country. And that's what I strive to be and managed to have a good junior career, won nationals all the way through and sort of top couple in Europe as a junior and then was making the transition into senior full-time circuit world circuit which I did to an extent and but very early on I think um, I broke basically I ended up with three spinal injuries um, uh, knee injuries now elbow injuries everything so uh, uh, having had a lifetime in sport you'd expect that but we we weren't ready um, there wasn't sports science or anything like that. We trained very badly in those days. We thought we were training hard, but we were running on concrete in our little badminton sort of ballet shoes with no support. We were doing thousands of touch jumps again on concrete. We were training till we till we really weren't very well, hard, thinking it was good, but it, it obviously wasn't wise. So uh, most of the colleagues in my era playing badminton, which is a, a it is a violent sport on the body, people don't quite recommend recognize that but it's um very very tough physically um and uh, i broke really so i never i would say rob i never fulfilled or never achieved what i would like to have achieved as a player um because of because of that and then from that moment on i was really determined to be the best coach that i i could be you know try and learn the trade learn the game still wanted that long-term life in sport so I better figure out um, how to do that and uh, set about learning coaching, but by trial and error, you know, setting up coaches, doing all sorts of stuff, which I'm happy to talk about if, if you wish. And um, I think probably it evolved that way, but it was also definitely where I was meant to be. The joy that I, I can sense it from yourself that, you know, coaching for me wasn't a source of income. It was the joy of, the, looking in the eyes of, of athletes and just helping them overcome a hurdle or get better in a certain area and watching them flourish or watching them transform and, you know, being able to maximise what they've got and bringing that out in them, just playing a small part in that, because obviously it's a huge team, many people do that, but that was the joy that uh, I was signed up to and I loved it, you know, so that's kind of how it started, yeah. And, the, and was that, you know, what age was it that you, you were forced through injury to stop playing Andy and was it well, yeah. just a, a straight away transition into coaching um well I um when we as I said we were struggling to make full-time earnings so I, I qualified as a coach when I was 16 17 and I actually coached at that age I started coaching and learned to coach um by running you know adult education classes local stuff community to bring some income and to fund my journey as a, as a full-time player and we we bought stringing machines and we did whatever we had to do so we could get on the world tour you know and fund it so that made us even more independent um so i'd started coaching early um and as a revenue source but when i was forced to stop playing and take it on full-time that would have been more 22 23 um, so, and in the early days as a coach, I probably was one of the first full-time 
uh, badminton coaches in the country, we still were of an era where it was volunteers or school teachers or ex-county players that did a bit here and there. And I went out, Robin, I went round all the schools and took a couple of international players, did some demonstrations, went in at dinner time, 20 minute demo, chucked out loads of leaflets, signed them up for the Future Stars programme. Every week of the six weeks holidays, we went, ran week training camps and they came and they came and they loved it. And then we did every night of the week training camps um, in various schools around Derby. And we started to create a whole load of youngsters, the likes of Donna Kellogg, Nathan Robertson, um, Anthony Clark came on some and they just from local schools, you know, Borrowwood School and Donna was, and they went on to love the sport. And in fact, they went all the way to the top of the game, uh, right the way to world world medals and Olympic medals and all sorts. And um, I was fortunate as a coach to sort of go on that journey with them from that period of time and um, uh, and and learn all of those hurdles, but as well as doing. The Young Muslims Association and the Derby West Indians and doing work for Olympic Solidarity and as I progressed as a coach with them and we got reasonably successful I started to be asked to do a lot more of the senior national stuff and you know regional first then senior and find myself involved right at the very top level and those players had pretty much come through as well so it was an amazing journey. Um, do you know though Andy I, I love this because Genuinely, when I said about Matthew Zide's bounce book, what what inspired me with his book was, I think he was Reading. I always get it confused, Reading or Swindon, but he was Reading and he was a, a young lad. And yeah. his, one of his teachers was a table tennis coach. And anyone yeah. that that came through the school who was like enjoying sport or he yeah. would try and get them to play table tennis. And, and as a result... Yeah. He would uh, give the parents keys to the local local church hall, I think it was, and he would arrange practices, some of which he'd be there yeah. for. And with with that, they created within that community, they created the men's champion of Britain, the women's champion of Britain, the junior yeah. champions. You know, they had this incredible scene. But I, I also think what's not always shone a light on there is just how many people they touched who weren't those national champions. You know, that's the absolute tip of the pyramid. Yeah. But what I'm finding incredibly inspiring about this, and I mean, we, you know, we've hung out and stuff. We've, yeah. I've not heard this before. And and for me, this, this is what drives me like no tomorrow is to try yeah. and get going in our community and develop what, you know, people like Jane Rushby and, and Ben yeah. and the guys have got going and um, is to, to make that happen around here. And, and actually thinking about it, this is what you've done in Derby. And the legacy of that is that I kind of see Derby as, as a sport where badminton is there in the culture. When they built the Derby arena, that massive velodrome, what was in the middle? It's badminton course, you know? And, yeah, and I think it's a tremendous is. kind of what yeah. you've achieved. is amazing. But that sentiment that you just um, uh, spoke about was exactly the same for me. Like, had an old school caretaker who opened the school up early before school and um you know he made he didn't know badminton at all he didn't even know really how to hold the racket it didn't matter because he loved us playing and he loved the fact that he was facilitating a group of kids to go and play and then in my secondary school i had this 
courage to just go and talk to the next caretaker and say, come on, we, you need to open the hall up. I need to train at 6 a.m. before school and you need to let me into the gym at lunchtime because uh, I'm going to come and do some more training at lunchtime. And then two or three of the other guys wanted to follow. And, you know, that those were the days when those kind of activities were enabled and those people don't the caretaker doesn't really understand the role that he played in facilitating that and you know for us to activate those guys more even in our current environment where health and safety's gone mad and nobody's allowed to open up that's that's the challenge because it definitely creates little hot spots of talent that almost push push themselves and they roll on to this production line of ability and it's almost facilitating that as well as getting good coaches at the right points of their development but um yeah. it's 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 how it starts <laughs> and it's but it's and it's that hot spot of talent that you got going and you know you mentioned yeah. some of the incredible stars who came through that and went on to to play at the olympics but yeah i'm guessing you got as much you know sort of kind of that sense of accomplishment and and that smile when you know you've made a difference to someone's life from the thousands of other people that you introduced to that game of badminton. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Very true. They become key, key players in your environment. They're not going right to the top, but they still play a huge part in making it all happen. Mm. I mean, you, you know, you've talked about how you went from that kind of playing the necessity of coaching into making coaching work by amplifying like crazy to get it up and running and to, I mean, that must have been a really exciting part. And then you started to get this regional and this national recognition. Um, Did, is there, was there a moment where, like, how did the move to become the national head coach of Great Britain Badminton, you know, how how did that happen? Um, I think um, I, I was, we were developing well and that group, well, I didn't sort of stay with that group of players all the time, um, but they were just breaking into the very top and um, there were still a few more before. I was asked to go and be part of the coaching team at the World Championships. I think it was in Kuala Lumpur and then my first Commonwealth Games in probably 98, yeah. And um, um, we... We had um, badminton Asian dominated. So we had a Korean national coach at that time and a Chinese one. And so obviously, technically, they were very, very efficient, but um, not so much on understanding the culture and the motivational forces of our athletes. So I got quite deep into managing um their let's say mindset around performance and being that and bringing that element to the coaching team and then they did really well started breaking through and I started to um, constantly from that day on go on to do but you know I soon became sort of head national coach and then uh, like a type of performance director type role and um, and then Great Britain Olympic um, team manager and head coach and uh, it was a real challenge for me to jump quite quickly into that because I saw myself as a technical people coach and then within that you're taking on all kinds of political strategic governance responsibilities as well and um, I hadn't trained or prepared for any of that stuff Um, so you just figure it out as you go along try and do it in a pragmatic uh, practical manner 
um, and make sure that your players and coaches and what's very best for performance isn't affected. And I think that's a bit, bit of the role I played to really uh, make sure you get into high political environment around Olympics now, you know, it's shot into this crazy commercial environment that you've often got people upwards that you have to manage very well. Otherwise, they'll interfere with what you know to be the, the, the fundamentals that are required in your training hall and in preparation. And it soon gets to the point where that's challenged. So that role as a coach uh, and then being able to protect um, your athletes and make sure they receive what they need fundamentally to get better that constant quest for performance gain isn't impacted by all of the other stuff so that was a big jump trying to figure that side out <laughs> and it's, it's it fascinates me so back to my, my little brother so he went to the olympics in athens okay yeah and he took with him this robin and this robin had pictures taken with all sorts of famous people over the years, it was a cuddly toy Robin, and he <laughs> sent me back. He'd always send me the pictures, and he sent me back one of you with him and the Robin. Um, and obviously, I mean, he was just full of joy for that occasion in Athens at the Olympics. But as a coach there, did you enjoy that experience? Was it was it yeah. was it too stressful to enjoy it, or how was it to coach at the Olympics? I think my first Olympics was Sydney 2000 and um, we actually managed to bring back the first ever Olympic medal for Great Britain then with a couple called Simon Archer and Joan Good. And, you know, that that was amazing. The Aussies throw festivals, carnivals like nobody else. So and it was back in the days when the Olympics really was the Olympics. You know, it was carnivals, it was street musicians, it was parties, it was a festival. It's the biggest peacetime gathering of people, you know, and uh, in such an amazing place. So I welcome that with pure excitement, adrenaline and the joy of bring, doing something special for Great Britain Badminton. And they were remarkable, those two players. And so that was awesome. By the time it got to Athens, and we had to obviously try and achieve something better than a bronze medal, and uh, things had moved on, it was more intense than, still had another a great team again of awesome people, the likes of Donna Kellogg, Anthony Clark, Nathan Roberts and Gail Emms, some real warriors. So this was um, the next challenge and um, they got all the way through to the final. So we were guaranteed a gold or silver. And in the final played a, a really top Chinese pair that always dominate. They always win Olympics. And after the first game, Rob, we got absolutely annihilated. They were incredible. I've never seen a force of smash or power or speed. And our guys didn't know what had hit them. Lost it 51 in seconds. I had to go on and do the interval. Think, How are we going to pull this one around? But to, to their credit, they got back into the game. They fought tooth and nail and, you know, settled a bit and they, and they took it all the way to the wire. It was neck and neck and your bro might have seen it, I hope. But yeah. it was one of those moments, probably on breakfast TV here. I think it captured the nation. Unfortunately, the guys just lost it. I don't, it was right on a knife edge. But so, but I'm not going to lie, the, the emotions for an Olympic Games surviving all the stuff around Olympic Games, it's a challenge. I had... We, we worked as a team of Great Britain Olympic coaches and you'd often find me and the wrestling coach or whatever walking around the Olympic Village at 3am pulling our hair out. We sit, sit on the bench and try and help each other overcome problems. And there was many stories about that, but awesome memories. Then, of course, into Beijing, China in 2008. And 
that was very challenging as Olympic Games. You know, obviously um, there's a, a different culture of operations and um, uh, but and there was another level of security around, um, you know, uh, terrorism and all of that. So um, that was even potentially even more stressful. Yeah. And then and then London, of course, and then Rio, Rio, by the each one of those, I think, got an additional level of security and restrictions and you know challenges around it all that you had to get your players through covid another era so just to get your players out there fit to play was taking most of your work let's let not so much the high quality coaching you know it's amazing just to be involved in so many olympics though i mean you know one question mm-hmm. for you. when that match in Greece, in athens it got so tight what yeah. are you like in that moment? You know, are you, <laughs> do you keep like a lid on it? Are you are you shouting encouragement? How, how yeah. do you as the coach? I know that. How do you deal with that moment? So we we have we have what we call a chair strategy, Rob. So the coach's chair at the side of the court in badminton. You can you can verbally uh, offer information, so you can reinforce. You can't speak while the rally's in play, but in the probably on average 10 12 seconds in between points and then you get breaks intervals at 11 end of game and intervals and you go onto the court and you offer help (laughs) or support or whatever it is so with each with each athlete you agree in advance what your chair strategy is I call it a chair strategy so some athletes they need you jumping up in uh, in the air stoking the fire shouting incentives (laughs) For other athletes, if they see you doing that, you think you're freaking out and you're not, you've got to be a total picture of calm and tranquility and composure. So, and some athletes in the breaks, Rob, they can't take any information. They're too emotively involved. So your whole job is getting their emotional bandwidth back to optimum. With others, they can take a lot of information and, or they can, but their partner can't. So they want it, but they don't. And so you, we put a lot of time into Okay, so what's our approach? What's our best uh, approach to this to get the result we want? How shall we be? What approach? Am I up? Am I down? Where am I? Am I fighting? Am I swearing? Am I sh- That's why I've never let the cameras uh, wanted you to have a, a mic. Uh, so it was probably better they didn't hear some of our in-match debriefs because <laughs> we probably wouldn't be too PC. Not for some, you know, so... Yeah, very, very interesting how you have to be adaptable, let's say. I mean, I've probably got a personality trait that's quite calm and, you know, progressive and relaxed because, uh, but it wasn't always the chosen route for some athletes. So you better try and figure that one out and try and deliver it. I don't suppose you remember when you've gone in at the end of that first game, you know, and and, and Nathan and Gail have, have taken a hammer in there. What did you say? Can you remember what you said? Yeah, I, I can remember it clearly, but obviously Nathan and I and Gail and I have done quite a few uh, presentations and stuff over the years. I remember it vividly because I always used to um, write down uh, all my stuff. You know, I'd know, I'd have it on file and because I'd want to get it right if it wasn't great for the next one and so on. But yeah, so the, obviously the biggest part was calm, composure and reinstilling belief, having got 
you know, you're playing for the biggest title and something that nobody's ever done. And you've just been blitzed within seconds almost. And, and, and you're also playing what seems to be a superhuman force. So for me, the biggest thing was reinstilling belief. We can actually do this and we are actually going to do this. And, and then there was just two tactical things like never flick because it's not worth it. <laughs> Take your chip because they're so powerful jumping back and hitting and it wasn't. Um, and then, to really take, be very positive to play the net. So there were two very simple technical things, but it was nearly all reinstilling. When we talk back, Nathan, normally Nathan, Nathan particularly is incredible in those breaks. He can take all kinds of information. Gail just needed positive support. She needed to know that she was on top of the world, then she, she would go on top of the world. But Nathan could take the technical bits. But I think if you ask them now, they would say, I don't remember a thing. I was just blitzed. I was in this... <laughs> I was just in this freaky environment that was like trying to figure out it was survival mode, you know, but whatever it, whatever it was, they went out and pulled it right back somehow. And uh, you could watch the whole stadium change and the energy change. And it was one of those, you know, uh, Alistair and um, another one of your gang, and we, we're doing a lot of momentum and flow of matches. This was one where you could visually watch the energy transfer from one team to another and then from the crowd and then from the coaches and uh yeah so Amazing. an incredible experience yeah, I, was <laughs> I was just thinking of Alistair there when it was talking to him about yeah an incredible experience I mean Andy you know you, you you coached at this incredibly high level all these Olympic games but you've ended up back in Derbyshire you know with the the Derbyshire Institute of Sport I'd love to to hear more about I mean how did that happen? I um, When I left my role with Great Britain Olympic Badminton, it was just in the build-up to 2012. Um, and it was as a result of um, uh, struggling to manage upwards. I had a chief exec that wanted me to operate in a certain way. And I, I realised I couldn't do that for my soul as a, as a coach. <laughs> so I chose to step away. And when I did that, um, a colleague of mine, David Joy, who's been uh, CEO of well got uh, British golf English golf and um, of British kayaking and a colleague Chloe Maudsley they came and chatted to me and said Andy we would love you to play a role in um, a, a plan that we've got um, around trying to get the local community to really celebrate talent in Derbyshire and they asked they offered me a piece of work to just have a look to see the climate to see if it was possible um, I took it on and, you know, we got together and they were, they were brilliant, creative people. And it became really clear about these hotspots of talent in Derbyshire. And that, that headline that we always get, Rob, when you're in Olympic Games and you hear that commentary where it says if Yorkshire was an Olympic country, they'd be number three on the medal table after four days or something. And we kind of thought, so, well, why not Derbyshire? Look at the talent we've got. We've got a brilliant Chesterfield table tennis set up, Colin Deaton Academy. We've got some brilliant athletes at Amber Valley. You know, we've got some great tennis players at uh, Church Broughton, let's say, and um, various other places. Look at what's happening. Um, so we managed to convince the city council and the county council and the University of Derby to put some funding together to create what was, um, uh, let's say, a real performance framework 
to pick up on the talent that's coming through that so often doesn't make it or materialize because they drop out because they're not fit for purpose because of injury or they've not been screened or profiled or they get fed up because of a deselection or because of an injury or they don't really know what it undertakes or the parents don't quite understand it so they don't quite get the balance right in that support network and we wanted to attach uh, a framework of support to really get our athletes' talent fit for purpose for the demands of modern day sport, both mentally and physically, to test them and profile them, to protect their bodies, uh, build up the main muscle structures so they were fit for purpose and really get clarity over, okay, I wanna be the next David Beckham and I'm gonna go and do it, or I'm gonna be the next Nadal. So what's it gonna take? How am I gonna do it? Who do I need? What does my body need to do? And um, try and develop this framework of support to enable them to really understand and progress. And that was the challenge. Um, it's due to, we've, we've gone through many bodies, Rob, over the last, since we um, started in 2012 as an Olympic legacy program to now, 10 years later, um, it's no longer the source of funding, quite rightly so. In economic times, it's difficult for the city councils and councils to invest in high-performance sport. They've got enough on their plate, you know, providing food and roofs for people. So we're now a community interest programme and we need local commercial investment and sponsorship um, to fund some of the programmes. But it's still that the inherent values are really trying to protect young athletes and give them you know give them sort of a performance mentor give them performance habit sessions test them and profile them musculoskeletal make sure they're strong and agile give them strength and conditioning and give them medical support so they can be free to be the best they can in um, terms of their achieving their dreams that's what we've gone about doing we had a challenge of 2020 vision 20 um, Olympic athletes um, we achieved that Derby used to have one athlete if they were lucky going to an Olympic Games and uh, and now we have programs um, preparation squads 9 to 11s to get them on the right pathway um, in terms of strengthening their body to get them to understand what's ahead we've got a performance academy as well um, we have office space at the velodrome at um, Pride Park and we also run programs into the community. We've got um, a business coaches program. So picking up on the philosophies of sport, but but teaching them into business leaders, you know, CEOs and everything. We have a unity program so clubs can uh, buy whatever they might need from us as a resource around physio or training or strength and conditioning. And uh, we just try to fund the program to enable these young athletes to be the best they can. Amazing. I mean, amazing. It's gone from strength to strength. And I know you've got, you know, services in so many areas across the board. Is it, are there particular sports you're working with or is it, a, could it, could it be any sport? You know, yeah. if, if there's somebody out there and they're thinking my child is uh, particularly strong in this sport, this sounds like the sort of thing, you know, is it for all sports, Andy? Yeah, it is, Rob. We've got such a range at the moment. I mean, We've um, primarily had a lot of success in the racket sports, tennis and badminton. And in athletics, we've got quite a lot of multi-eventers, the likes of Meeve Emerson, Ella Rush are all flying now, Imogen Lawn, the, um, swimming, swimming's been good. But just to give you that, we've got football on the programme, we've got rugby, um, got judo players, we've got um, paracyclists, got a frame runner, 
I've actually got an equestrian gymnast, somebody uh, on a horse doing gymnastics on a horse. Wow. So I've uh, got polo. So yes, any sport, uh, anybody with talent that really wants to understand some of the sports science concepts in a much deeper manner and also to get a framework of support. I think we got a lot of success Rob, from creating this sort of cross sport fusion that we talked about yeah. earlier on in the early years. And, you know, we, we try and share them mentors. So they have buddy mentors from other athletes from another sport. So how did you deal with exam stress? How did you deal with your first E selection? How did you deal with uh, that car journey when I was struggling to stay calm? Um, and we also run that side of our mental fitness sessions, which go into those as competences, you know, creating self-awareness, self-regulation, resilience, communication and motivation as well so we try and really celebrate those kind of life skills that are critical uh, that we talked about earlier in in mm. almost determining whether you're going to be the athlete you want to be and is this something that you know do you have to do children or players or do they have to be of a certain level you know well, or, or or is it actually it's not governed purely by performance no, again, like we've been through um, lots of cycles over this 10 year period. And initially it was we were really looking for the high talent, you know, and I think, like we said earlier, anybody that shows an aptitude and a real eagerness to have a life in sport, that regardless of, of natural talent level, they can grow very rapidly and um, they can also celebrate this sort of life skills pathway and learning sport as a trade or even just as a hobby. And I think, you know, it's so powerful. We're missing a trick through academia uh, sometimes of what you actually learn by taking a sport on from a young age and um, all the stuff around time management, personnel skills, goal setting, you know, all of that adaptation, solving problems, all of that stuff that you do in sport is huge. So no, it's very much open to a, a, a range of levels now for sure. Come on. And if, if, you know, if there's a parent listening and they, they think, you know, they think, oh, this sounds like the business, then how would they get in touch, Andy? Yeah, so I have got like a, a phone number um, um, and also um, th there is a Derbyshire Institute of Sport website. So that's just derbyshireis.co.uk. Um, I don't know. And there is a phone number for inquiries. Um, and all of the stuff's online. There's quite a social media presence now for Derbyshire Institute of Sport. Um, but basically, a phone call, say I'm interested, then there'll be very rapidly a meeting. What do you need? What are you looking for? How best can we support your sporting programme? We don't want to duplicate anything. So we build a programme of support that um, really fits in with what you're currently doing now. And a lot of young tennis players, for example, they've got a brilliant tennis programme and they're working with excellent coaches and sometimes two or three times a day, every day, but they're not necessarily getting decompression or uh, interaction with other athletes away from their sport or they're not necessarily got a strength and conditioning programme that's equipping them for that level of on-court stuff and the potential for muscle imbalance doing a one-sided racket sport all day or they haven't got access to a, a physio for when they get quite severe uh, DOMS or, or muscle fatigue or, you know, so we build a programme of support that fill the gaps really, Rob, mm -hmm. I think. 
No, it's great. And I'll make sure we yes. get all the links out there on the podcast so people who are yeah. find that phone number yeah. can find the link. Um, yeah. An interesting one. I mean, coming towards the close now, but, you know, you, you must have come across a lot of sporting parents in your time. It's a it's an area I'm really passionate about giving help and support to sporting parents because their journey can face its challenges as well as its, you know, absolute rewards as well. What, yeah. would your, what would your advice be to the parents of promising sporting juniors? <laughs> yeah, I think it's um, it's a you know it's a huge area, and um, everybody wants to be uh, wants to get it right, but emotionally, it's challenging at times to act in the right way as a sporting parent, and um, and an athlete themselves really has to understand uh, what that role is. And I think one of the programs we've run, the mental fitness, it builds on that unit, which is the coach, the athlete and the parent. And it really goes into maximizing that support network. So there's absolute clarity, roles, responsibilities, the ways to support it. And there's no crossover. There's a real clarity of what we're all doing. So because you visited that so clearly, when it does just go over the line a bit or people get emotively involved or really passionate and oh, it's just time to be a dad and not not a coach dad and it's it's very clear and we can say hang on we've discussed this this is where we are this is how we're going to best operate but so often we go blindly into what this is and um, we don't understand the impact of it so building that unit coach athlete parent and significant other whoever that is might be school caretaker it might be granddad it might be teammate might be brother or sister but that there's lots of work around facilitating clarity in those areas and it probably really needs doing in modern day sport where it's a different world now <laughs> you know you you can fall into so many traps and you know we mustn't hide from it sport is creating um not always only healthy mental environments you know there's a lot of stuff that can go wrong so we need to be on our toes in getting wise to cr create that level of clarity around it yeah that is, it's good advice good advice and i mean you know i i mean i've just loved hearing about your journey i think just inspirational from from the start all the way through the things that you've made happen really and and the latest chapter with the Derbyshire Institute of Sport is such an exciting one. Um, so, yeah, if people are interested, please do take a ride over to that website. Um, I've got to ask you before you go, though, Andy, it's a question we, we generally ask at the end of the show. But if you could go for a drink with anybody alive or dead, who would it be and why? <laughs> yeah, I struggled with this, to be honest. There's so many um, very very um, people that have played a part in you know cr creating who you are I really struggled with it but obviously go back to an old favorite which is Brian Clough and I would um, being a Derby lad being a football fan being on the boys pen and you know seeing those glory days it left a huge mark in uh, you know when we were dominating Europe let's say and that era and I love the Mavericks and the freaks and the characters and um, so somebody of his ilk a I heard he liked a few heart starters and B, he was a real character in terms of how he looked at man management and personnel and, and unique in his operational styles. And anybody that's done that instinctively and from within and from a creative, natural flair for it uh, is somebody that must be 
immensely capable of teaching an awful lot. He'd be one. One of the things I love about Clough is he was obviously, and he'd be right up there for me, he was obviously very eccentric and an incredibly, like, the way he motivated his teams and, and got them ready to go. He did things in very different ways. But what I also love, and I wish I, there was more about it, there's a guy called Daniel Taylor who, who wrote a book on, he's written some books on Forrest and Clough and things. And and what I would, lo- I would love it if you could have a book from him on how he instructed his teams to play, where everybody knew their role. Because what I've, the limited material I've read about Brian Clough, he was very clear with the players on what their role within that team was. Your job is to get the ball, well, it seemed to be your job is to get the ball <laughs> to John Robertson. <laughs> Martin O'Neill, don't you be trying to do it, just get it to him. That's your job. You know, centre-backs, don't you be trying to play, get the ball clear, get the ball clear, get it to the fullback. the fullback. your job's to do this. And I just think that, like, for all the personality and enigma, which was such a massive part, but there was also this, simplicity of how he managed to get everybody to know what their role was and to perform to their strengths. Yeah. And there's an Einstein quote, isn't there, about, you know, can you explain it to a, there was a a tennis coach called Ashley Neves and I saw him quote it the other day and he said something about, if you can't explain it to a four-year-old, you know, you're you're in a bit of bother here. (laughs) uh, To paraphrase. And I think Clough was also brilliant at that. Yeah. I mean, the big question is how would he adapt to the modern era and would his skill set find its way in such a sports science, technical data, analytical environment, which which it's obviously become. And you kind of hope that his personality and his charisma and his man management would figure out a way to still be as powerful. But who knows, you know, or was he just perfectly skilled for that era? And it was that he came out at that time. So it's all that stuff going on, isn't there? I don't know. Come on, <laughs> come on, class act. Well, Andy, <laughs> Mr. Wood, I mean, it's been, I've loved talking. I could talk all day. Um, yeah. It's been brilliant to hear about your chapters and here's to exciting ones ahead. But um, yeah, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Rob. It's been a pleasure. That's all for today, but thank you very much for listening. And if you enjoyed that, please do hit the subscribe or follow button so you keep up to date with new episodes. And we look forward to welcoming you back to my tennis journey very soon.